Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. Close-up magician is the supreme applied psychologist. You know where people are going to look. You know how to divert attention and interest, more importantly. And you have to cloak your presentation with some meaning for them to keep them interested because that's what my books told me. Magic is not for practicing in your room. It's for going out in the world and sharing with people. before the internet, it was before videos, instruction, it was all from books. And it wasn't until I met some other people who did it that I said, oh, that's what that's supposed to look like. Oh, this is how you hold the deck of cards. Oh, I get it now. And it took a long time. Now today, a kid in Singapore can uh, invent a move and then it's crowdsourced and hacked and by morning, Somebody in Finland has improved it, you know, over four generations and it's performance ready. It's amazing what's happening today. Close-up magic is a very specialized branch of the art and here's what it is. It's a very intimate type of performance. No comic, no dancer, no actor even really can get that intimate with another human being where you're handing them an object and looking into their eyes and using their name and, and finding out a little bit about their background in order to infuse what you're doing with some meaning for them. And it's a very personal thing. So that's why it's wonderful. It's an art form. It's a form of self-expression. It's a way for me to connect with another person or maybe three or four at a time. It's pretty special. Boys and girls, welcome to another episode of the Phase World Podcast. My name is Fei Wu, and I'm so excited to be here. First question, do you believe in magic? I do, and I've been lucky enough to witness some in real life as well. But for the first time ever, I'm welcoming a professional magician on our show named David Williamson. David is currently touring in the U.S. in a circus show called Circus 1903, a brand new show from the producers of The Illusionists and the Puppeteers of Warhorse. It's a fun celebration of the golden age of circus. Their most recent stop was right here in Boston, Massachusetts. Here at Face World, we love the circus, and we fell in love with David's performance in Circus 1903 instantly. The audience was naturally and completely captivated by his words, his humor, and his incredible talent of improvising with children ages 5 to 9 on stage. Going from breathtaking to laughing until your tummy hurts is a pretty good way to describe my experience at Circus 1903. To my surprise, David isn't a trained ringmaster, but a professional magician. He has been featured on ABC's Champions of Magic, where he appeared with Princess Stephanie as he performed his miracles at different locations in and around Monaco. 
David has also co-starred in several top-rated primetime network specials, including CBS, Magician's Favorite Magicians, NBC's Houdini, Unlocking His Mysteries, and NBC's World's Greatest Magic 3. He was seen recently on the CW's Masters of Illusion TV series as well. In 1981, David won first place in the International Brotherhood of Magicians Sleight of Hand competition. That same year, he also became the first ever recipient of the prestigious Gold Cups Award of Excellence in Close-Up Magic, which is a topic we'll cover in great detail during this episode. But these are only among numerous awards and recognitions David received worldwide. In our conversation, I found out that David has performed in my native China during the most watched programs in the country. Imagine, 1.3 billion people. Yep, that's our Spring Festival, aka Chinese New Year's Eve broadcast. But working as a magician is a career very few people can pull off. How did he do that? What are the words of wisdom he would like to pass on to the younger generation? David opened my eyes to a world I had never entered into before. He brought me back to the early 1990s when I was still dreaming about becoming a, a magician. I wasn't lazy, but I also didn't have what it took. Most people don't know how magicians perfect a trick over the course of a year, few years, even decades. David is going to unveil the world of magic to you and the life of performing with a circus. How cool is that? So please drop me a note if you like this episode and who else you would like to hear from in the performing arts world, hint, hint. And uh, yeah, here goes. David Williamson, magician and ringmaster. so glad you could join me. I was thinking how how much it takes for two people to sort of to come together and <laughs> you know there's like fate involved. It took 1903 kind of this world tour to go around and finally appeared in Boston. I'm just so excited. <laughs> oh great. Fantastic. Yeah. You must be exhausted or do you how do you feel right now? Uh, no, I feel, uh, well, we did three shows yesterday, My God. so you would think I would be exhausted, but no, they take good care of us, and it's, I'm not the one doing the backflips and <laughs> <laughs> handsprings. It's uh, not as rigorous for me. Yeah, but still, I mean, you were phenomenal. I mean, I... Oh, thank you. Wow. I never interviewed a ringmaster before, and I know you're not only a ringmaster, but you're a very recognized magician as well. well I've um, never been a ringmaster before, so yeah, this is novel for me as well. Wow. You you looked completely natural, and wow, <laughs> and you're just comfortable on stage in front of, like you said, a thousand people, and you were unbelievable with kids. And I want to ask a lot of those questions. Um, let me jump in and ask, how were you discovered to be a ringmaster? Like you said, that's not really the, was necessarily the trajectory of your career path. <laughs> that's absolutely true. I never dreamed in a million years I'd be a ringmaster in a circus. <laughs> uh, now, I uh, am a magician 
as you said, and I've been doing magic all my life. Uh, turned to my mother when I was 10 years old, and I said, I'm going to be a professional magician. Work on my brothers. Don't worry about me. <laughs> <laughs> and she was very supportive, and both my parents were, because I had a passion, and I knew where, what I wanted to do. Um, so along the way, fast forward decades later, I uh, ended up in the cast of The Illusionist. And The Illusionist is a touring uh, review show with uh, several magicians of different styles. And uh, Simon Painter, the producer of The Illusionist, the man who put it all together, saw me and we spoke. And he, he had me in his cast in Australia three years ago. And then he had me in his cast in the West End in London at the Shaftesbury Theater last year for a couple months. And he kind of... Uh, he saw the vision. He saw me with a top hat and tails and the ringmaster garb, and he thought I would make a good ringmaster after seeing what I could do. So he'd had this idea for many years for Circus 1903, but when it finally came together, he called me about seven or eight months ago and said, hey, do you want to be the ringmaster in our circus? And I knew a little bit about what he was planning with the amazing elephants and all the acts that he was going to source from around the world. And I didn't hesitate. I said, yes, absolutely. I would love to do that. Wow. That was seven or eight months ago. So you've been touring with this group. We've been touring since December. Only since December last year. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I mean, I got the call in the middle of the summer of last year. So I had a few months to prepare. And then we all uh, converged upon Melbourne, Australia in November at a large um, empty movie studio there. And we built, literally built this show from the ground up, from the grid work to the um, ballasts and the paint, the scenery and the curtains and uh, all the costumers came with the, all their almost finished costumes. And, and the composer came with his almost finished score. And, and we just kind of put it all together there in Melbourne over the course of several weeks. And then we hit the road in um, Australia, rolling it out in Canberra at their theater center there. And then the Sydney Opera House was our second stop in the concert hall there. And I have to say that was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Two yeah. weeks to the Sydney Opera House over the holidays. Well, I saw in one of your blog posts, you said you had, uh, you always had fun on stage, obviously, but this has taken your experience to a whole new level. Oh, absolutely. And isn't it phenomenal for you to witness from the start? Because as part of the audience, and I've spoken with, as you know, several uh, Cirque du Soleil artists, and mm -hmm. um, it really depends. You know, some of the artists are sort of brought uh, into the show once the setup has already been completed, whereas some of the other ones uh, is part of the design crew. And what was it like for you to witness almost like in a way raising a show, creating one, and a lot of things could have gone wrong too. What was that process like for you? I have to say that was the most exciting part for me because I was brought in fairly early on because what I do is fairly specialized as far as the magic end and the comedy needed to fit my style. And so I was brought in as a writer and uh, I brought with me uh, a friend of mine, uh, Mike Caveney, who's a wonderful historian of magic, but he's a, a hilarious uh, comedy magician and a wonderful writer himself. And he had his hand in writing some of the other uh, scripts for uh, a few of the other shows that the, these producers have done, one of them being uh, The Illusionist Turn of the Century, which was a vaudevillian version of The Illusionist that played at the Palace Theater on Broadway last year. Mm -hmm. So he's steeped in the history of magic, but he's also very uh, well-versed in that time period. 
And so he was the perfect guy to bring aboard to get some of the vernacular correct. And also he had the magic knowledge. So we were able to put together some the comedy sideshow routine with some of the gags and some of the magic that you see in there. And he really helped me, you know, find my voice. And along with our director, Neil Dorward, we found some inventive little ways to use my skills and lace me throughout the show so that you didn't get sick of me, but uh, I was there to support the acts and make sure the presentation kept rolling along. Mm. I've been to so many shows, guilty enough to, uh, yesterday one of my friends asked me how many they, and I said probably, <laughs> you know, more than 10 shows. And this is almost, I consider it's almost part of my business because I want to learn more about independently sort of managed uh, crews and teams. And uh, there's, mm-hmm. you know, so much excitement and you'll learn from every show not to say that there is some overlap, maybe perhaps among the artists themselves You know, I love when you said that you found your voice because to me, uh, from my perspective, you're very natural as if in a way it's almost like you are, you are, you were part of the creation, sort of the creator team. And there is that sort of harmony and synergy, but it sounds like it was a process. You didn't just get dropped in the show and everything felt completely natural. Um, No, there was definitely a process. (laughs) There was a lot of trial and error and things just didn't ring true. So we had to cut. And uh, I will say this about Neil, our director. He's not afraid to cut. He cut. (laughs) He just, he was, and I told him from the early on, I said, now, Neil, you know, I'm not an actor. So I said, be brutally honest. I need you to be honest with me. If it doesn't ring true, if it sounds phony or if it looks horrible, just say so and we'll cut it and we'll do something better, you know. So that was, uh, there was a, a lot of trust there that we all would, you know, be honest and just make the best product we could. Mm. Well, what would be an example? It's interesting because when you break up the, the circus show, typically, you're like, I love this guy. But I would love to move on to kind of see this next segment. Uh, I didn't feel that way. I felt like I want to see more of this guy. I don't even know who he is. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, we, yeah. Because there, you know, it, you, you can fall too much in love with a character or a moment and just try to milk it, and you give people too much. And uh, you know, I think the old adage, adage "always uh, leave them wanting more" is so true, and it's necessary to move a show along. Mm. For for example, I put together, as soon as I knew I was going to be the ringmaster, I said, what does a ringmaster have? Well, he's got the top hat, he's got the riding boots, because uh, you know traditional ringmasters were the equestrian masters. That's how it all began. They, they stood in the middle of a big ring, and the horses would run around, and they'd do these incredible equestrian uh, tricks and so forth. Uh, so that's why he's dressed like a, uh, a gentleman rider, you know, with the... Uh, jodhpurs and the boots of the whip and i said oh the bullwhip i'm going to put together a comedy bullwhip act it'll be perfect <laughs> for the ringmaster you know something out of my wheelhouse there so i got this bullwhip and i paid a thousand dollars for this kangaroo skin bullwhip you know and uh, i said i need to find somebody to teach me how to use this bullwhip now so i don't put my eye out and i looked <laughs> online and there's one place in the world it's called the bullwhip artistry studio of all things (laughs) and this is an ex-entertainer he used to do shows in las vegas and around the world and he's an expert with the bullwhip and when stuntmen or uh people from the indiana jones uh show in orlando need to learn how to use a bullwhip they come to him and study with him at his studio and i said this is the guy i need wow where does he live where do i have to go to study with this man and it was 10 miles from my house. Wow. 
I live in Southern Ohio in a little town called Yellow Springs, Ohio. And uh, he lives down the road in Jamestown, Ohio. His family knows my family because we're both from families of farmers there in rural Ohio. Amazing. So anyway, I studied the bullwhip with him. I got good at it. And I put together this hilarious comedy routine with mishaps and knocking cigarettes out of audience members' mouths. And, and we put it in the show in Canberra. And it was getting laughs and it was getting there, but it wasn't quite, it wasn't quite right. And uh, it made the show a little bit too long and boy, they cut it. And, uh, and I had to agree with them for all the reasons, but I, I've worked so hard on this. I was so proud of it. Wow. <laughs> so the Bolt Whip Act is not in the show. Maybe it'll resurface somewhere else down the road. Oh, I wish you, I mean, I, I know it's, man, isn't that difficult sometimes when you are a creative person? That, yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. We had a know? lot of things like that that we put in that just didn't make the final cut. And you have to go, okay, that's the process. You have to shrug it off and just make what you are left with the best you can. Mm. Because, you know, I interview, I mainly interview creatives and I consider many people artists and not just painters. I What I love about what Brian Koppelman said is that creating is failing all the time. That once you've chosen the creative path, it's basically trial and error all day, every single day. Absolutely. That's right. I remember when I was a, I was a painting uh, student in uh, at Wright State University. I thought I was going to be an artist, wow. uh, although I knew I was going to be a magician. But I thought uh, I, you know, I really enjoyed art. And I made this beautiful painting. And uh, for my mother, it was a still life. I was a freshman in college, you know, and every time my high school art teacher, I did something pretty good. He put it in a frame and gave it to my mother and everybody was very proud of me. So my first painting, I really spent a lot of time on it and I showed the finished product to this young art teacher, this professor, and he said, okay, that's okay. He took some white gesso, some white base paint and painted over my creation. Oh. And he goes, do it again. And I was dumbstruck. You know, I said, wait a minute. He goes, oh, you think you're an artist? Because your first try, your first attempt... Because if you could do what you just did, you could do it again, but better. Come on. And canvas is expensive. Don't waste these frames. You know, you're not going to hang everything you try up on the wall. And it was a great lesson. It really was. And it shaped how I think about any kind of art uh, that I do, you know, in the world of performing. Yeah. Wow. There were these two paintings right behind me, and mm-hmm. you know they were done by my mom, who is living with me and who is uh, basically paved her way through uh, as uh, this professional artist and who has supported me. Wonderful. Yeah, it just—it's incredible. And then one of the stories that she shares, believe it or not, that 
she said that she has this rule where she doesn't throw away any painting halfway through. She said, you know, there are a lot of artists out there kind of just rip the piece of paper off their notebook or whatever and just start from scratch again and forget about the previous one. And she said she forces herself not to do that and continue to make it better and not to throw away her work. So, oh, yeah, I was like, that's really interesting. Yeah. You say when you're 10 years old and you knew you want to be a magician. And I oftentimes, yeah. you know, ask my guests, what were you doing or thinking or dreaming about when you were 10 years old? Because it's such a magical age. So tell me about what was going through your head. Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> uh, like I said, I lived in a small town in Senior, Ohio, and my dad was a farmer and a you know, sometimes a factory worker, and my mom worked at the university in the budget office, and I had two brothers. And uh, for some reason, I got the magic bug. I think I, in the fourth grade, we had a little story about Houdini, and at the end, it, the book taught a little coin trick. So I got pretty good at the coin trick. And Mrs. Moore, my fourth grade teacher, I'll never forget, she looked at me and she said, hey, David, that's pretty good. Maybe you'll be a magician someday. And I can just imagine the neural pathway being formed, burnt into my <laughs> brain at that point, because that's the first time somebody looked at me as the middle child and going, hey, maybe you'll be blank, you know, talked about my future. And that year, a magician came to our school and did a little program on the stage for the kids. And I was completely fascinated with him. And again, uh, Mrs. Moore, my teacher, saw that I was so excited and so fascinated. She talked to the magician and said, look, I have your backstage assistant. He'll take care of your rabbit and he'll help you carry your doves out here van after the show and i did and i felt like i was in the club and he treated me that way like a fellow brother magician <laughs> imagine the impact that has on a kid that age so that kind of started it and i remember at the age of 12 i got a book from the library called the amateur magician's handbook by henry hay it was his pen name his real name was barrows musi but he talked about in the introduction, all the great men of magic he met when he was a boy in Iowa practicing magic. He used to go meet Tommy Nelson Downs, who was a famous sleight-of-hand man from the vaudeville area, lived in a neighboring town. And John Mulholland, a famous magician and collector and historian of magic. But anyway, basically, he was telling me that there's a larger community of magicians that communicate with each other and respect each other's uh, histories and and it was a little introduction, a little peek into the world behind the curtain of magicians. And I thought, wow, there's a wider world out there of uh, these people who love this art form. And that fascinated me. I go, I want to peek behind that curtain. I want to meet some of these great men and travel the world, you know. And then when I was 13, my mother found an article in Boys Life magazine about a little town in Michigan Colon, Michigan, was a place where the Blackstone, the great Blackstone, the magician, used to summer there on Lake in Colon, Michigan, little farming community. Every year they have a festival in the summer where thousands of magicians come from all over the world and camp, and the Amish folk flee their farms and rent their homes to the magicians. And there's a big magic festival to this day. Wow. What is it called again? Where is it? Colon, Michigan, C-O-L-O-N. Wow. It's the home of the Abbott's Magic Manufacturing Company. It's a magic company that builds magic. And boy, uh, you know, I used to get their catalog of magic tricks, and it was as thick as a phone book. 
And so when my mother dropped me off there with a pup tent at the age of, at the, at 1974, I was 13 years old, me and another kid from Cincinnati dropped us off. And then she took off for Wisconsin to visit her sister. So there we are in the middle of this dairy field in our tent and all these other magicians with their RVs and their tents and the sitting at picnic tables by Coleman Lantern and doing magic tricks. And then we go down to the high school to see the big shows and the and the marketplace, the dealer's room where they sold the wares and they had lectures, and competitions. It was the greatest weekend of my life. I'll never forget it. I met so many wonderful people that weekend that are still lifelong friends to this day. Wow. And that was my introduction, formal introduction to the world of the crazy world of magicians. And 95% of people involved in the art of magic are amateur enthusiasts. They're not crazy enough to try to make a living out of it. So there are magicians in every city. There's a wonderful magic group here in Boston. There's magic groups in every city. So, you know, when I'm traveling to a city, I'll put the call out and I'll have dinner every night with a different magic friends. <laughs> wow. Seriously, you just reach out and... Oh, absolutely, yeah. There's some wonderful magicians here in Boston. Isn't that incredible? Because how do you go about selecting the people you want to meet with? I've been doing this 40 years or more. So <laughs> it's uh, we've become friends. It's a small community. Everybody knows each other. <laughs> mm. It's interesting. It's a small community because I grew up in Beijing, China in the 80s and 90s. And uh-huh. I had magic books in Chinese and, and in English. And Really? Yeah, and I'm not alone because, you know, we have show and tell and we have different activities in school. And my mom has purchased so many different kits, you know, you have the cards and you have different, you know, the cups. The rings, yeah. Everything. And what I felt rather surprised by, I wouldn't use the word discourage, was as a child, was how difficult it was to Mm -hmm. practice magic. and. In comparison, you know, I'm also happen to be a skateboarder, like a skater. And yeah, and I just compare practicing a very simple magic trick as a child versus practicing Ollie, which is a technique, you know, yeah. click the board and you basically fail on your knees, your wrists, your elbows for three months straight before you can go up for two inches if you're lucky. So that's how I felt about practicing magic. That's a wonderful uh, metaphor. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, that's the way I felt about it, too, when I was a kid, because, you know, I was an an introvert. And if I could accomplish something that my brothers couldn't do, because both of my brothers were very accomplished in sports and music and, you know, had outgoing personalities. I had none of that. I had magic, though. I could have a few small magic skills and a few secrets and imagine how far that got me in school because it kept me from getting beat up and I would make friends with the jocks because I fooled them and they thought I was cool. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I practiced and I had a real practice regimen. I remember as a kid, I was just thinking I have to get better and better and better. And that was before the internet. It was before videos, instruction. It was all from books. And it wasn't until I met some other people who did it that I said, oh, that's what that's supposed to look like. Oh, this is how you hold the deck of cards. Oh, I get it now. And it took a long time. Now, today, a kid in Singapore can uh, invent a move and then it's crowdsourced and hacked. And by morning, somebody in Finland has improved it you know, over four generations and it's performance ready. I mean, it's amazing what's happening today in the world of sleight of hand. In fact, I liken it to skateboarding because there are kids today who do things with a deck of cards that I didn't think was possible 
when I was their age. And they don't want to be a performer. They don't want to travel the world and be in a show or do birthday parties to make money on the weekends. They don't want to do that. They want to make a cool video, edit it, put some awesome music, a little slow motion, a couple filters, and put it up on YouTube. The end. You know, it used to be a deck of cards was you get the one down at the corner store, the bicycle deck of cards, because you didn't want to have an unusual brand because people thought they would be unusual or trick. The idea was that it doesn't look like you do anything. Mm. It looks like you pick up the deck, maybe give it a cut and set it back, back down. Meanwhile, you've just stripped out and palmed the four aces. It's very ninja-like, cloaked in secrecy. But today, there's these back designs are innovative and beautiful, and there's graphics, just like on the bottom of skateboards. And certain artists get more attention, and these kids are trading in these cards and doing these overt sleight-of-hand moves. It's called cardistry. If you ever want to have your mind blown, Google cardistry or go to YouTube and uh, search cardistry and watch what these amazing, there's just cardistry con just happened in Berlin. Kids from all over the world come to Berlin to show each other flourishes with decks of cards. It's like skateboarding of the hands. And that's a whole new branch of magic. Wow. Now, some magicians of the old school are very threatened by this. And they say, that's not magic. That's juggling. There's no mystery. There's no theater, you know, but I don't care. I love it. If I would have been 13, Mm-hmm. Here in 2017, I'd be doing it too. It's fantastic. Yeah, I must say that the way you started the show, right? I you didn't draw so much attention to yourself. So I didn't even connect the dots right away that you were a magician. And and that moment came. I remember as a kid and just playing with a deck of cards and try to shuffle it. And that moment, that moment became so obvious to me. And you're standing in front of the kids, and you have this deck of cards in your hands and you just shuffle like kind of i don't even know what that's called but basically i did a few flourishes i did yeah a little spring the cards from hand to hand yeah just i do one or two flourishes just to uh to draw attention yeah and i was so up close like oh my god i can't believe that just happened in itself you know you watch these incredible world-class aerialists contortionists like doing their thing Mm -hmm. right And they're great with their bodies. But I think about our hands all the time. Our hands are magical. And what we can do with our hands, and some of my guests even say that, kiss your hands every day because they (laughs) make magic. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, I've been massaging a deck of cards. I've been shuffling a deck of cards for 45 years, and they're still not shuffled yet. But uh, I don't leave the house without a deck of cards. (laughs) Because if I'm waiting for a car or I'm sitting at a theater or something. I always have a deck of cards in my hand. I'll never be bored. I can always keep myself entertained. Mm, You know, when I started the, it's so funny that you mentioned that. When I started the podcast, I interviewed a lot of family and friends and within 10 episodes, I realized, wow, I could reach out to anybody in the world and that's magical. Mm -hmm. But there was one gentleman who I, I knew for a long time, but we never conducted an interview and he's this pretty world-class keynote speaker. So before we got started, and this guy, Steven, Steven Shapiro said, hey, Faye, do you want to see a trick? And <laughs> I was like, what is this about? So before we even turn on the mic, turn on the recording, he just took out this whole suite of things. I was like, I didn't know this guy could do any tricks, obviously, part oh, time. the magic? You find it everywhere. I mean, there were so many people out there who were secret magician geeks. Uh, a good friend of mine I grew up with is named Chris Kenner. And he's David Copperfield's number one assistant now. He's his main go-to guy. Kenner was telling me he was at a, uh, of course, he goes to all the fancy Hollywood parties and so forth. And he was at a party not too long ago, and Bob Dylan was there. 
ever reclusive Bob Dylan. And he comes over to Chris and he goes, hey, can I show you a trick? Because Bob Dylan likes magic, was doing magic tricks for Chris. No way. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) When I was 15, I was still living in Beijing and I came to the States when I was 16. So one year, David Copperfield was in China and it was a really big deal. He took over the entire stadium, I believe, at the time. And um, so I went, one of one of our family friends, and it was really eye-opening. And years later, that means maybe I'm not as plugged in anymore. I learned about this gentleman, <laughs> you know, named David Blaine. Is that, yeah, you have worked with him. I yeah, saw. David Blaine. I've known him since he was a teenager. He used to come around in New York when I'd be hanging out with my buddies up there and, and uh, practicing his magic. And then, you know, the next thing you know, boom, he's got a TV special and uh, he's world famous. He's a great guy and he's uh, very serious about magic. And uh, and I worked on a couple of his specials as, unquote, consultant. I, I love his style. And I see some, I definitely see similarities between just how relaxed and comfortable you are versus sort of his style, which I wish I was introduced to the magic world that way versus I also enjoy Copperfield, but that's more flashy, you know, and it's more flashy Vegas, a little more formalized. Yeah. Um, so when did you leave Beijing? What year would that have been? Uh, when I was 16, that would be in 99, 2000. Okay. So yeah. in 2009, we had the world uh, magic. It's called FISM. It's the biggest magic uh, gathering in the world. It's every three years. It's kind of like the Olympics of magic. <laughs> and it was in Beijing for the first time in 2009. Whoa. People must have loved it. Oh, they did. I went ahead and I did a lot of press beforehand. So I did a lot of TV shows and interviews and stuff. And uh, people there didn't really um, you know, know David Copperfield. He wasn't a common name. And uh, so For a short time, I was the most famous Western magician in China because I was on all the chalk shows and the newspaper and so forth. But all the magicians from around the world came to Beijing and all the Chinese magicians came out. And I met so many great Chinese magicians. And there's a wonderful community in Beijing of fantastic magicians. And eventually, uh, I went back like 12 times after that, toured around uh, China doing uh, theater shows and also lectures for the various magic groups in all the different cities all over the country. And uh, you're right that there are student magic clubs, and they're not necessarily performers. They're kind of like fans of magic, and they do a little magic. But, you know, I have 30 or 40 people show up from a university magic club all these kids to learn about magic and uh, the way we do it and so forth. Yeah, it's great. I love to see you go back there. I, you oh, know, was, uh, I, I loved it. I've met so many wonderful people there that are, you know, friends to this day. I haven't been back for several years, but uh, I made many trips to Beijing. In fact, I was one of the co-hosts of the Springtime Festival on BTV. Whoa, oh, that's incredible! I just uh, ask you. We started off when you were ten years old, and ask your mom to say, "Don't worry about me. Worry about my brothers." And <laughs> and the next thing you know, I'm not even sure if your parents or uh, brothers are aware. of of the numbers we're talking about, that's over, that's 1.3, 1.4 billion people. Oh, uh, yeah. Think about the percentage of, you know, back in the old days when I was growing up, eight or nine years old, like the entire nation would tune in before the YouTube yeah. and web, talking right. about maybe a good 30, 40, 50%. That's, that's just still an insane amount of people watching oh, you I on know. TV. And the other show I did was a, a children's festival at the old CCTV studios there in Beijing, these giant television studio. And it was a cast of over a thousand kids doing these amazing dance routines and entertaining. 
It's fantastic. Wow. I can't believe how, you know, the world is so small sometimes. It really is. And magic, (laughs) you know, I I think back to that 13-year-old kid practicing his car tricks and sitting in the dairy field in Colon, Michigan with his eyes wide. And these magic tricks have taken me all over the world, you know, and uh, it's wonderful. That's why I love, you know, love the art of magic. And anytime I see a kid practicing magic, I try to take as much time as I can with them and encourage them. I think the magic tricks these days place even more of a significant role. I notice like a, a lot of my friends are uh, older than I am, and I just love when they approach me with a trick. You know, some of that. You know, it is a small trick, which I've you know many I've seen, but I love watching people perform. Well, close up magic. Close up magic is a very specialized branch of the art, and here's what it is: it's a very intimate type of performance. No comic. No dancer, no actor even really can get that intimate with another human being where you're handing them an object and looking into their eyes and using their name and and finding out a little bit about their background in order to infuse what you're doing with some meaning for them. And it's a very personal thing. So that's why it's wonderful. And it really, uh, it's a very specialized thing. And it's an art form. It's a form of self-expression. It's a way for me to connect with another person or maybe three or four at a time. That's why I love close-up magic, you know, sitting at a table with just a a dozen people or fewer and just, you know, showing them some magic and creating uh, just uh, these moments that they've never seen before and it'll never happen again. Yeah. It's pretty special. I love it. And I watch it, you know, some of the David Blaine's shows and, you know, I've had people and especially love when teenagers these days uh, approach me with a magic trick. And I feel very special. Well, because they're forced to... They're forced to talk to you and look you in the eye, and it's a wonderful tool for learning how to be social. When I was a kid, like I said, I was painfully shy, and as a 17-year-old, I was very tall and very geeky and gawky and awkward, but I was compelled because that's what my books told me. Magic is not for practicing in your room. It's for going out in the world and sharing with people because you need another brain in the room to appreciate what you've created and to get the magical effect. So... I was out there work busking, working in restaurants and hustling tips and so forth and approaching older people and couples and you know, families. And for me to talk up, walk up to somebody at a party and talk to them is still difficult for me to this day, just as me. But as the magician, it taught me some social skills. And the close-up magician is the supreme applied psychologist. You know where people are going to look. You know how to divert attention and interest, more importantly. And you have to cloak your presentation with some meaning for them to keep them interested. You know, kids who study magic come away with a tool set that serves them beyond just the magic tricks. Mm.
I completely agree with that. You reminded me of a story when uh, actually around 2009 and, and eight, my dad was really sick in the hospital in Beijing and, you know, he eventually passed away. But during the most difficult time, and I was so worn out, I was just a caretaker, but my mom was doing most of the work and I had put myself on a leave of absence from work and I was away from my social group. But, you know, it was doing feel like I had a couple of books, thank God. And at the hospital, you didn't quite socialize with a lot of other people. Some of that feel forced. And I remember this gentleman who was also sick, 86 years old, and he had this grandson who was 10, kind of a chubby little kid and who came to visit him. It was so funny. He was really shy. And his grandma said, why don't you show Faye a magic trick? And I looked at it, I was like, okay, sure, you know, just like give him a stage and let him perform. And he didn't, he didn't look super psyched and he performed that trick. I just remember my anxiety was completely out of the window. My heart, my heartbeat felt normal and just my blood pressure, everything just felt really good for those three minutes. And it didn't even matter to me whether he was good at all. And in the end, I was really surprised. I had no idea what he did to make that happen. I was like, wait a minute, (laughs) you fooled me. And it was so beautiful. And I just want to see so much of that happening in this world. Um, There are people listening to the podcast who have full-time jobs, who had, we still do have these dreams, whether it be an artist, a blogger, a magician, and they never thought it would be possible. And I wonder... What was it like for you at the beginning? What were some of the hard parts that, in retrospect, that you either have to live through that where you could have done something different to overcome them? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's very difficult uh, life. You know, when young magicians come to me now and go, I want to be a professional magician just like you. Do you have any advice? (laughs) But I say, yeah, make sure your girlfriend has a good job. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Or good education. You might have a chance. But it was very difficult to try to make a living. I remember when I was a young hotshot in my 20s and I was going around to all the magic festivals and do, winning competitions and doing my little lectures and so forth and wrote a book. You know, it was kind of an ego-driven kind of time for me. A more established magician sat me down and said, look, it's well enough to be the flavor of the month when you're a young man, but you owe it to your parents, he said to try to figure out how you're going to make a career, how you're going to make a living doing this stuff. Because it's going to be a long arc and you're in this wonderful moment, but you need to think about revenue. You need to think about a savings plan. You need to think about your future. And he kind of kind of laid down the law for me and you know, said, show business is two words. You've got the show. You need to think about your business and take care of that and figure out how you're going to do this. So he was absolutely right. I think I resisted that a little bit. But, you know, as years went on, I really appreciated him taking the time and saying, get serious about how you're going to turn this into a career. And, you know, uh, with the help of friends along the way, showing examples of how they maybe marketed themselves or set up an LLC, you know, a separate corporate entity, even though they're just one person, it was beneficial in some cases. And uh, uh, along the way, I kind of learned these lessons that, you know, I would have learned a lot quicker if I would have taken a couple business classes in in college, but I didn't think I needed that. (laughs) (laughs) I think the most valuable lecture 
that we could possibly have at a magic convention these days is have a tax lawyer come in and lay down the law and tell us uh, yeah. <laughs> to look at our taxes as performers and uh, in the, you know sole proprietors for our lo- little businesses and so forth. But uh, no, we get the guy who comes in to show a new card trick for 45 minutes. It's like, wouldn't it be more valuable to have an expert marketer come in or a, uh, a tax lawyer? <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I think we, we joke about this, but it's absolutely true. You know, yeah. I, you know, a, I'm a freelancer and uh, I was able to carry my skills and experience as a project manager and digital producer to really to have a lucrative career, you know, something I can rely on. But I recently taught at Leslie College right here in Boston and and then they were, were teaching project management and some of the students weren't as interested, but in general, that knowledge is never taught anywhere. And the moment you graduate, you're expected to know. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's fascinating. Right. I, w- I would love to see that. We should make that recommendation to all these conventions <laughs> and get together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, now it's a very kind of ad hoc, loose apprenticeship kind of thing. And you cobble together your own information. It really is the school of hard knocks uh, because especially these days, there are as many ways to approach a career as a professional magician, as there are professional magicians, everybody's got their own approach and way of doing it. It's not like the old days uh, where you had uh, a certain management companies and bookers taking care of everybody's career, you know, and you had to depend on, but now with the digital entertainment and uh, all the various venues, uh, there's so many different ways. And just when you think uh, the rules have all been set, somebody comes along and breaks rule and makes a career for themselves. So it's a very exciting time actually right now. Mm, do you think it's hard? Is it harder now because there are many different paths versus just one? You know, that's a good question. I, I don't know if it's harder or not. That's an excellent question. It's hard for me to judge because this is one of those careers where the longer you're in it, the more opportunities open up. And so I have more opportunities, obviously, to me now, 40 years later than I did you know, when I was starting out in my 20s. And uh, so it's very difficult to judge from this perspective if it's harder for a young person coming along or or easier. Yeah, the path was a little more straightforward back, you know, 30 years ago. But these kids these days seem to be embracing that. They don't want one path. They want to forge their own and create their own audience, create their own eyeballs and bring their own audience to them rather than trying to, how do I get access to that audience out there? Well, I'll just create my own. Yeah, it's interesting we're talking about this. It's almost like now you have a mic, you have a computer, anybody can be a podcaster and produce shows versus back in the old days, which uh, I was fortunate enough to work at the China National Radio Station for one year as this young DJ. And Really? Did- yeah, I loved it. I, I won wow. an English competition and uh, this producer approached me and I thought he was kidding. And, you know, that moment is like, well, this can be real. And I paired with a very renowned DJ. I remember all the girls from my high school was asking for his autographs. And, and the <laughs> next thing I knew, I had my own show for a year right before I came to the States. So I remember just how interesting that was, just getting letters sent to my home, to my school and People from all around China would just tune in on that versus now, you know, I like this format a lot better. But when you don't have this official master voice behind you, this corporation behind you, you know, what is your legitimacy and uh, how 
you know? And, and you know, I interviewed Dory Clark, this uh, wonderful woman speaker in New York, and she wrote this book called Stand Out. What are your thoughts on how do these young magicians these days stand out and create a brand that actually can be differentiated and, like, recognized? Good question. I don't know. It's going to bubble up. Uh, somebody is going to stick their head above the pack because it's kind of like the lemming thing. Everybody follows the last successful guy. And then it's that one person who goes, wait a minute, and stops and goes, I'm going to go the opposite direction because yeah. everybody else is going that direction. That's what David Blaine did. He was the first person to turn the camera around. The camera was not on what the magician did. The interesting part of that television show was the crowd reaction. What happened to the tricks that David Blaine did in his first special? I don't want to you know, reveal anything, but they were very simple tricks. I mean, they were simple, but powerful. The I simplest loved it. tricks can be the most powerful. It was very powerful, but very simple. Some of them you can buy from a magic shop, you know. But he did them well, but he did them understated. He didn't present them like a showman. He just kind of a guy walking down the street and he was something cool. And boom, if you get the right crowd reaction and turn that camera around, that was a whole new way of uh, marketing this magic and seeing a TV show through the through the because all close-up magicians have always known that these simple tricks get crazy reactions. But we've never seen that on television before. So David Blaine was the first person to turn the camera around. He didn't go where David Copperfield went or Penn and Teller or any, anybody before him. So he kind of switched gears. And uh, that's kind of what it takes, I think. Wow. That is still so far my favorite uh, video. Felt like a documentary, right? In a way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it felt yeah. so close. Felt like instantly I was drawn to this guy. I felt like I knew him. For 20 years, you know, you trust him right away. And just, you can see just the pure joy he was able to kind of create somebody's life after meeting them for five minutes, I, five seconds. I don't know whether those yeah, people are yeah. actors or not. I don't care. So, right. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of, uh, yeah, that was, I mean, the whole television world changed with Survivor and the, the reality show. Mm -hmm. You know, watching you, on the other hand, uh, your magic with kids, I mean, May I ask, how do you possibly even engage and organize them? Because I'm a, I, I'm a martial art nerd, and I encounter three, four, five-year-olds all the way up to, <laughs> you know. I'm, right. oh man, I, people who haven't taught kids or a group of kids don't right. know how exhausting that is. Right. Well, I have learned how to channel their energy for my gains. <laughs> oh, you, you clearly so, do. <laughs> uh, you know, I worked on Disney Cruise Line for about six years, uh, wow. entertaining family audiences. And I loved it because it wasn't a kid's show. It was a family show. So I would entertain the adults through the children, you know, by talking to the kids and letting the kids be kids. Because if you put the right spotlight and the right framework around a little six-year-old, there's nothing funnier. There's nothing more charming. If you hit them with the right questions or give them the right tasks to attempt to do. So yeah, every night I get four kids on stage and we attempt to do this little card trick and I give them each a little job and uh, hilarity ensues because it's like herding kittens. It's chaos, Yeah. And but it's controlled chaos. I've been doing it long enough. I kind of know the signs. I know the cues. I know when a kid's about to burst into tears or burst into something else, you know, or... Yeah. <laughs> or wet the floor. I mean, it's all happened over the years. I've done this routine thousands of times now, and I it's completely different every night 
because the personalities of the kids, you'll get some show-offs, you'll get shy kids, you'll get charmers, you'll get brats, you'll get everything, but they're all wonderful, you know? And I hope that what comes off is that I respect childhood because I do. I love having kids on stage and just saying, look at these beautiful children. Let's try to put them through their paces. Nope, that didn't work, but we were thoroughly entertained and that doesn't matter if the trick works or not because that's not what it's about at all. Mm, I was so touched when you said, you know, oh, the little boy to say that, you know, you're going to have this beautiful life and just like, you know, drew tears to my eyes and it, it does I now. have to keep from tearing up every night when I say that too. It kind of came out organically one night when I was doing The Illusionist in London. I had a little boy on stage and I said, come over here. I want to talk to you. And he plopped down and he sat on the floor. So I said, okay. And I sat on the floor with him in the spotlight. And we just had a very nice little chat. And I asked him if he believed in magic. And he said, I'm not sure. And I thought that was a really great answer. And I said, you know what? I'm not sure either. I go, but I'll tell you this. Many magical things and amazing things are going to happen to you during your entire lifetime. That's for sure. And uh, he accepted that. He goes, okay, that sounds cool. You know? <laughs> and, I, I thought, and I thought, you know, it's true. I look at my life and I look at the life of my children and all the people I know. And it's like, life, that's what life is. And that's kind of my summation for this circus show. Life is a circus. And that's what I want to kind of leave the kids with. It's like, this circus was amazing. Guess what the rest of your life is going to be? Even more amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's so philosophical in a way that you interpreted a very difficult concept in a very easy, digestible, unforgettable way. Every day there's a gift. Like meeting you in this podcast. I know. I I do have one more question about... uh, You mentioned that you're a dad, and I think somewhere on the website you had mentioned you have a few children. And uh, how old are they approximately? I wonder how cool is it to have you as a dad? I don't know. You know, I think, you know... (laughs) My daughter's 18. She's a freshman in college, and my son's 25. And, uh, you know, I think they love, they've both traveled all over the world with me. You know, they've been to a lot of different places. And I think the thing they love the most about me being a magician is the community around me, all my crazy performer friends. I mean, I have some true eccentrics as friends and some brilliant people some hilarious people, some very fascinating, learned people. And so they get to meet all these wonderful people in our life. And uh, I think that's what they love the most is just all the crazy people that, that we know uh, around the world, you know. And, and when they travel now on their own, they're getting to the age where they can travel on their own. They're always going to have a friend or a, an uncle or a big brother or somebody to look out for them wherever they are because they know they're one phone call away from having a hot meal on a bed to sleep in because of the network of magicians out there. Wow. Such a, like you said, it's a the small, closed community, but I think that beats much bigger, you know, sort of less connected communities. That's right. There are, you're right about that, like music or the world of comedy or acting and things like that. They're huge communities, but they're not very cohesive. This uh, Magicians, for some reason, are very fraternal. Maybe it's the secret nature of the, the art form, but uh, magicians love to get together and share secrets and, and boost each other, you know, and help each other's careers and so forth. Wow. Amazing. Thank you so much, David. What a pleasure to have met hey, you. Really nice to talk to you. Yeah. Nice chat. Thanks. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Oh, likewise. Hi there. It's me again. I want to thank you very much for listening to this episode, and I hope you were able to learn a few things. 
If you enjoy what you heard, it would be hugely helpful if you could subscribe to the Face Royal podcast. It literally takes seconds. If you're on your mobile phone, just search for Face Royal podcast in the podcast app on iPhone or an Android app such as Podcast Addict, and click subscribe. All new episodes will be delivered to you automatically. Thanks so much for your support.